We are at Whitestone Lanes, right off of the uh, Van Wick. We are taking advantage of the $25 All You Can Bowl, Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. deal. So like we literally can now, the three of us, bowl for the next three hours at $25 each, which is fucking wild. This is the Hellgate Podcast. I'm Chris Robbins, a reporter and co-owner of the site. Bowling is one of my favorite things to do. It requires a little skill, but not a lot of hustle. You can talk to people the entire time, and eating French fries and drinking beer is encouraged. My best bowling happens after I've consumed exactly one and a half beers. This is a scientific fact. But finding a decent bowling alley in New York City is hard. The newer ones are upscale joints, built for corporate expense accounts, where an hour or two of bowling will set you back at least 100 bucks. Then there are the places that have survived decades of redevelopment, the ones with weird pastel color schemes and lots of beige seating, and a cranky but efficient person screaming over the loudspeaker, frozen cheeseburgers, video games that eat your money. These places are for everyone, and they're to be protected at all costs. So when the Daily News reported a few weeks ago that Whitestone Lanes was closing, it was like a mighty redwood was being chopped down. According to documents obtained by the paper, the owner declared that, quote, the bowling alley has reached the end of its useful lifespan, end quote. Apparently, he wants to build over 400 units of housing there instead. It's true that New York City is in the midst of a housing crisis. But had Whitestone Lanes really reached the end of its lifespan? Well, it's good. We got the warm-up All right, we got a warm-up. Yeah, we got a warm-up now. That's great. This week, me and my colleagues, Max Rivlin-Nadler and Lauren Visboli, headed out to Northeast Queens, past LaGuardia Airport, past City Field, to Whitestone Lanes, to talk to bowlers about how they feel about the impending loss of a bowling alley that has been part of the neighborhood since the 1960s. Well, we got here just just after 6 o'clock and it was pretty dead, but then obviously the deal is so wild and incredible that people began showing up and we're getting towards a much fuller house here. Um, I mean, just to begin with, this is a huge bowling alley. Like, this is 48 lanes, which is freaking massive. Um, and we're getting pretty close to full, even on league night. Whitestone Lanes is no frills, all charm. There's 24 bowling lanes on each side, with the cash register and shoe return in the middle. Video games are sprinkled throughout to keep board kids busy. There's a pro shop where league bowlers can pick up gear or have their balls repaired, and a cocktail lounge, which is in a separate space at the back of the building. There's a sign over there that says, House rules, proper attire, proper responsible behavior, no head rags, no cursing, no bad language. Keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. No matter where you grew up in the United States, there's a very good chance you've been to a birthday party or school event in a bowling alley that looks and feels and smells exactly like this one. For the record, we're all tied. Oh. All right, so I'm beginning to see why Chris really, really pushed for this bowling episode <laughs> in that this is strictly because he wanted uh, everyone to watch him bowl and fucking knock down strikes right and left. On the lane next to ours, we met Javon and Anthony, who were each bowling solo on their own lanes. Javon. Javon, nice to meet you. You said you're a student? Yeah, please come. You have a really unique, like, throwing style. How would you describe it? Like, oh, 
the friend who got me to start bowling here, he taught me how to curve the ball. He does it with one hand and he has his own ball, but I have weak wrists so I can't do that. So I have to do two hand bowling. So I use like the first hand to guide and the second hand to do the spin. And then I just try and like be consistent with where I aim the ball each time. So it's kind of like I'm practicing. Like they, they, I could do better, but I'm just, I'm just practicing. So they want to build housing here instead of a bowling alley, which kind of makes sense because we desperately need housing in this town. But like when, I don't know, when they knock this place down, like what will the neighborhood lose or what would you lose? Like me personally, I would lose a, um, I lose a convenient bowling spot. I would like housing, that'd be very nice. Um, my only concern is who's really going to get the housing. Is it going to be like open to the community? Like is everyone going to be able to get it? Or is this going to be like another like Manhattan type building where only like people who are like super wealthy can get it? Like yeah. who, who's really getting the housing? Anthony arrived at Whitestone Lanes carrying his own ball. He's 95 years old and a retired washing machine repairman who tries to bowl as much as he can. Max spoke to him after his last frame. So you've been coming here 30, 40 years. At least, maybe more. I've been bowling since I was uh, 20. I'm 95 now, so I guess I'm bowling bowling about 70 years. How old are you? 95. You're 95 years old? You just bowled 141. Yeah, that's bad. I think you can bowl better than that. I just average about 170. Wow. And what was your best game ever? Uh, uh, 260. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, you're incredible. Um, how, how often do you go bowling? Well, I try... I try to go as often as I can, but sometimes maybe three, four times a week. Three, four times a week. Yeah. Do you always bowl just one game or more than one? Just one game, because at my age, I can't bowl that many games. How has the bowling alley changed in the, you know, decades you've been coming here? I'm not the same. That's why I'm sorry that they're going to close up. There's no other place to go to. What's your recommendation for somebody who wants to stay bowling until their mid-90s? Oh, just keep back with you. you know, once you stop moving, you die. On the other side of the building, the North Shore Catholic Bowling League was getting ready to throw some rocks. We spoke to Stan, a member of the league who had been coming to Whitestone Lanes since he was a teenager. Been here, maybe like 14, 15 years old, beginning, beginning in the bowl. My parents used to bowl. Uh, we, we realized on the weekends and stuff, so as a kid, uh, this is where I learned how to bowl. I bowled in high school also, and uh, ever since, just kept it a, a weekly entertainment thing. So so take us back to when you were 15, what was this place like? Was it any different? Uh, it's, it's very similar, uh, no video games. Uh, the lanes were all wood, original wood. Now they can fit through the, uh, the, the synthetic wood. Do you know when the you know when the last the last bowling will be? Uh, yeah. We don't know. They uh, they assured us that we're gonna finish our summer league at least, uh, going all the way up to uh, Labor Day. Um, anything up in September, we don't know. We're up in the air. So many many of us grew up in the area, uh, in the Flushing area. Um, so uh, one of one of the uh, last bowling alleys left in Queens. You know, so so we we'll just try to take advantage and uh, still bowl until until uh, it goes out. As we were talking to Stan, two Whitestone Lane staffers approached us. One of them wasn't too happy with us talking to bowlers about the fate of the business. He insisted that the reports that Whitestone Lanes was shutting down were hearsay and asked us to not talk to any more customers. When we asked him to put us in touch with Whitestone's management, he declined. Another staffer approached us 
He said his name is Ray. He was wearing a black polo shirt with Whitestone's logo on it. He told us that he started working there seven years ago, almost by accident. It's interesting because I was here that's with my daughter. I saw somebody running around. I said, can I help you? They said, come back October, whatever. That was seven years ago. I, didn't, I was looking for a job or anything. And they said, when I came back, I started working. That's what I did. My passion, I love bowling, you know? Ray was a little cryptic when we started asking about the future of Whitestone Lanes and whether the housing plan would actually go through. It's a case where, you know, bowling lives on forever. We're not going to shut down that tomorrow, the next day, or the next day. There's so much more processing to take place. You know, so you never can tell. A lot of red tape involved. And even so, it's a dull scissor that they're using for the tapes. It's a dull scissor? Yeah. Hi there, this is Chris Robbins again, a worker owner at Hellgate. I know you like our podcast so far, and wouldn't you like even more Hellgate in your life? Subscribe. Hellgate is New York City's only worker-owned news site. Our goal is to bring our readers stories that are trenchant, playful, outraged, irreverent, useful, and never a chore to read. Go to hellgatenyc.com forward slash products to subscribe. Okay, back to the show. I don't know about you, but one of the things I love most about Hellgate is our commitment to covering local culture, stuff that is good and interesting and happening around us that we can all enjoy and engage with. To that end, my colleague Adlin Jackson, who writes the Leave Your Apartment column for Hellgate, spoke with the founder of ScreenSlate, John Derringer, about the strength of New York City's indie film scene and a trashy-ass B-movie you won't want to miss. So I'm John Derringer. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Screen Slate, which is a New York-based publication that we started initially just to aggregate all the repertory and independent film listings happening in the city, as well as media art and video shows. So we cover places like, you know, MoMA, Film Forum, Anthology Film Archives, underground film screenings. And, um, you know, that was formed in response, you know, I think it's probably you realize at Hellgate, like with the decline of local media, a lot of resources to discover that stuff have essentially pulled back on local coverage or disappeared entirely. Over the years, it's grown into being uh, pretty much a full-blown publication at this point. We publish a daily email with original film criticism. We do interviews and stuff like that. And we also have a podcast that's about a year old, and we talk to filmmakers, film curators, people just kind of on the film scene. So just trying to carry the torch of local film criticism. Are there influences you have in mind? Like I know that Hellgate is like really inspired by the Village Voice. Two of us worked there and what kind of guides you? Yeah, the Village Voice is definitely a big inspiration, both in terms of the way it used to have really robust film listings and also covering uh, underground film, especially when you think of people like Jonas Mikas in the 60s and stuff, as well as the history of film criticism and writing that's there. And even some people like Amy Talbin, for instance, um, you know, who's a really important voice over at the Village Voice, contributes to Screen Slate sometimes. And so there's even some actual overlap. Also thinking in general about the history of film exhibition in New York, ranging from like beautiful movie palaces to 
places like Anthology Film Archives and Jonas Mikas and Amos Vogel and Cinema 16, trying to keep a spirit of um, adventurousness and discovery alive in terms of thinking about film programming and how to engage with film in the city. And then more recently, too, things like Showpaper, which used to cover all the DIY shows in New York, was a big inspiration. Definitely thinking more on the like DIY alternative end of things. Prior to coming to Hellgate, I, I typically covered music. And there was kind of a boom in the kind of like early 2000s in terms of the availability of space in New York and, you know, artists being able to kind of take advantage of that. And like, you know, with in the past like decade or so as like the availability of, of places to do things like that has become more constricted. Like uh, there's like a kind of sense of mourning. So long story short, I'm basically just interested in a snapshot of that scene over the past a couple of decades. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. that's a really... No, yeah, totally. I mean, definitely, I think cinemas have been subject to the same, basically, real estate forces and, you know, livability issues that any cultural scene has faced. So I think it's harder to open and run a movie theater now for those reasons. There are also more film industry-specific factors, like A lot of people, myself included, you know, feel passionately about analog film exhibition on 35 millimeter, et cetera. The digital sea change in some ways has hurt that. But in other ways, um, the digital change, I think, has opened up some possibilities for more like DIY kind of film exhibition. So I used to be part of a volunteer run cinema called Spectacle. Like I was, you know, part of the crew that initially kind of got it set up and programmed hundreds of shows there over a relatively short number of years, uh, which is kind of crazy. But Spectacle, I think, is a place that was enabled largely because of changes. And like, you know, you could do like a DIY digital micro cinema that is open seven days a week. And that was a pretty, I think, radical and new thing at that time. But of course, there have also been other underground spaces for decades that are doing like artist film screenings, um, more like experimental film. You know, it's kind of crazy because it started in 2011 and you had like 285 Kent and Death by Audio and Monster Island and like, you know, all these DIY places. There were also screening places like um, Galapagos, which had the Ocularis film series. And now I feel like Spectacle is kind of like the last, maybe like only DIY holdout in Williamsburg. I don't want to shortchange anyone, but I, yeah, I really can't think of any venues. And then even the larger North Brooklyn area, I mean, you have Light Industry, which is a great uh, space run by Thomas Beard and Ed Halter. They were in Greenpoint for a while, but they, they just moved over to East Williamsburg. But yeah, even like Screen Slate itself, we do a lot of screenings and have always tried typically to do it in more of like a DIY capacity and at non-traditional venues, you know, and sort of like running them almost like shows. So, you know, I think in some ways like film has followed that trajectory, particularly when it comes to artist run type types of things. But then when it comes to more institutional venues like Film Forum or MoMA, et cetera, I think a lot of what they're pushing up against is more like the difficulty of print shipping and showing 35 millimeter. And also another huge thing that I think is getting in a lot of ways worse all the time 
is rights issues related to film, because as companies, you know, conglomerate and swallow up all these film libraries, the ability to even just get permission to show things or pay screening fees or sort all these things out. Um, In some cases, there are even like really well-known films that fall into these weird gray areas where all of a sudden no one can show them because no one understands who actually owns them. So those are the kind of issues, too, that are more general and not necessarily specific to New York. But I think in the big scheme of things, the overall film exhibition and screening landscape feels pretty healthy at the moment. I think it sort of comes and goes. And of course, it was a little difficult to gauge during COVID and in the immediate aftermath of COVID. But the other thing, too, I'm hearing a lot now is that every cinema is packed. Uh, every like repertory cinema. And I've experienced that too, where I'm trying to go see like Bellatar or Pishit Pong Weir Sethical, like, you know, relatively in terms of mainstream culture, like niche art house directors. Of course, within that scene, they're like iconic and they're like totally sold out. And Anthology Film Archives um, has been some people there have told me that they've never had, you know, bigger audiences. So. It just sort of comes and goes. And, and Screen Slate has been around for 12 years. Uh, it also started in 2011. So we've definitely seen like things ebb and flow. And then I guess, what are some of the things that you're like in terms of programming that you're excited about that are going on right now or might be coming out? Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a little bit of a lull, but in July, there's a Nagisa Oshima retrospective at Anthology Film Archives, which I'm excited about. He's a pretty major Japanese sort of quote unquote like art house filmmaker. Uh, his best known films are probably in the realm of the senses, which is known for sort of shattering taboos around the depiction of unsimulated sex in films. And um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which is uh, stars David Bowie and the late Ryuichi Sakamoto, uh, who also did music for the film. So that's pretty well known. But he's always had like a really um, unconventional and uh, I think boundary pushing style in terms of both the form and the content of his work you know, the opportunity to kind of dive deeply into his full body of work beyond, you know, even those two more well-known films is really exciting. Um, But I also love, I mean, I love trash and B-movies. So, you know, places like Nighthawk or Alamo, sometimes Metrograph will show like really fun, trashy movies. There's one I saw coming up at Nighthawk Williamsburg, which is called The Exterminator, uh, which is made by this guy, James Glickenhouse. And it's kind of like in that wave of Death Wish, Charles Bronson style movies, but it's like the most extreme, violent, sort of like reactionary portrait of like gritty New York City, gotta clean up the streets, uh, which You know, it's like when we watch it today, it's kind of just like comical. It's sort of like a parody of that style of film, you know, sort of like non-vets who come back to New York and they're like, the city's worse than Vietnam. Like, we got to do something. And uh, what else? Yeah, I mean, I I love Roxy Cinema. We do a lot of collaborations with them, uh, which is a venue that has been doing screenings for a number of years, but was really under the radar for a long time. Uh, And a lot of their programming was focused on like, or sort of marketed toward like their hotel guests. But now it's really blown up post COVID as a theater that tons of people are going to. They put a real emphasis on showing 35 millimeter and stuff. They're showing a film 
I don't think they're showing it on the 4th of July, but around the 4th of July called Uncle Sam, uh, which I like quite a bit by the director, William Lustig, who did Maniac Cop. And it's basically about like um, like a desert storm vet who was killed in friendly fire. And he comes back on the 4th of July and, you know, wreaks havoc during the 4th of July celebrations of the small town. I think, you know, you can really go highbrow, lowbrow or, or anywhere uh, in the next month. And yeah, I mean, Film Forum next month, they're doing a run of Godard's Contempt, uh, which is, you know, one of his masterpieces. Are there like spaces that you think are really special? Like if there's anywhere that you're just like, this place is awesome and I want places like this to continue to exist. Yeah, yeah, definitely spectacle in Williamsburg is the first place that comes to mind. If people don't know, it's a 30 seat micro cinema entirely run by volunteers so you know there's no money changing hands on that end of things you know as i mentioned i was i was a big part of it uh the first uh five years or so but now it's been around for about 12 years and it's continuing to run uh in this sort of i would almost describe as like functionally anarchic uh way and I think it's kept like a strong voice with the programming and um, it's just a really special place that I still go to a lot. I don't live that far from it and um, it just feels really good to to be there and you can really feel the passion of all the volunteers who make it possible. Light Industry is another incredible venue that, as I mentioned, just recently relocated to East Williamsburg and Fortunately, it's it's kind of an upgrade. Uh, I shouldn't even say kind of an upgrade. It's more comfortable and aesthetically pleasing than it's ever been. And the programming uh, is really strong. They typically do screenings once a week on Tuesdays. Anthology has been around essentially since, let's say, like the 60s and evolved out of other sort of underground film things that were happening at the time. You know, it's still holding it down in the East Village It. Second Avenue and Second Street in an old courthouse. And um, that's been in some ways, I feel like, kind of a home base for Screen Slate as well. We've done a lot of series there and uh, I have a lot of friends and kind of overlap uh, with them. And uh, their programming is always fantastic. They have something else, too, I didn't mention because it's a little further out, but people should have it on their radar, which is John Wilson, who does the HBO show How To with John Wilson, uh, has a series coming up in August, uh, which is really wild. It's like a mix of sort of, I don't know if I would quite say offbeat documentaries, but yeah, interestingly programmed nonfiction films. And John's a, a friend who's been on the Screen Slate pod before, so you can listen to the the John Wilson Screen Slate pod episode. And I guess uh, my last question is just uh, about what is kind of like the role, would you say, this is another, this is going to be another like huge question that I'm <laughs> yeah, just going to totally. lay, lay in front of you. But like, uh, like the role of New York in the film industry, like I think it can kind of be to like the lay person, it can seem a little obscure, like what the importance of New York is to the film industry. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the commercial film production world, you know, I think people you know, rightfully tend to think of L.A. as the center of gravity. But of course, there's a really rich history in New York of whether it's underground filmmaking or like 80s independent filmmaking. You know, if you think of people like Jim Jarmusch and No Wave and Michael Almereda and stuff, 
you know, and of course today continues to be an important production hub for mainstream stuff as well. There's like, I think Netflix has studios around like the Bushwick area and their sound stages in Greenpoint and Silver Cup. So I think New York is still really important, although it's always a bummer when I feel like we used to get so many amazing films that were shot on location in New York. Like, you know, if you think of the sort of gritty 70s, like Midnight Cowboy and French Connection, I feel like now they just go to Canada or whatever, just chasing tax incentives. Yeah. And then in terms of kind of screen slates wheelhouse, like repertory film programming and uh, independent cinema. I think New York really is kind of the most important place for that. Just in terms of curation, like no one, I think, touches what's happening in New York. Just the breadth of like adventurous programming, you know, continuing to show 35 millimeter. There's a lot of interesting series conceptually in the programming when it comes to like pairing feature films and short films and also the access you have to people here in terms of special guests coming out and stuff. Uh, It's really wonderful. And I do think L.A. is sort of catching up like they had a bit of a dark period, but there are some new cinemas opening. And we also did an episode about that recently uh, on the pod. Um, But, yeah, I think New York is like it sucks that it's impossible to get to movies because the trains are broken and shit. (laughs) But uh, I would say aside from that, you know, it's like kind of the place to be for exploring film culture. Okay, that's it for this week's Hellgate podcast. And we should let you know that we're taking a summer break for July and August. We hope that you'll be able to take a summer break too. And we'll see you back here in the fall. Hellgate is a worker-owned, subscriber-funded news outlet covering New York City. Our editorial team is Adlin Jackson, Max Rivlin nadler Nick Pinto, Katie Way, Esther Wong, and me, Christopher Robbins. Nadia Tykolsker is our business manager. Lauren Vespoli is our producer. Our theme music is by Groupwork. You can find their music on Bandcamp and all streaming platforms. This podcast is engineered by Crutch Phrase Studio. During the week, check out hellgatenyc.com for daily reporting, in-depth investigations, and more stories about New York City. And if you like the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.